This episode of the Real-Time History Podcast is sponsored by Nebula. Subscribe to Nebula to listen to this podcast and watch all our Real-Time History videos earlier and ad-free. You also get access to exclusive historical deep-dive documentaries like our World War II series 16 Days in Berlin and Rhineland 45 on the dramatic and decisive final stage of the Second World War. Sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash Real-Time History Podcast for just $30 for an entire year and support this show. Hello everyone, this is Flo. And this is Jesse. Welcome to an exciting episode of the Great War Supporter Podcast. Why is it so, so exciting, Jesse? Well, uh, because I guess we German speakers you know, made a rational decision that it was going to be exciting and now we're implementing that decision, so I'm excited. Precisely. And the reason why this podcast episode is exciting is because it's available to everyone. Because we figured since we are running a special offer campaign for our uh, Patreon page right now, which is available for another week, um, people might be wondering, hey, what is this Great War Supporter podcast that I'm getting access to? Well, before you explain it in uh, various flowcharts and PowerPoint presentations. Flowcharts. Uh, yeah, I like that flow. I, uh, you caught what I did there. Uh, before we explain it in complicated flowcharts and PowerPoint presentations, uh, we can just make this one episode available to everybody. Uh, it's going to be live on YouTube. Uh, you can also download the audio file on the Patreon page, uh, listen to it on the go, uh, wherever you want. Um, when you are a supporter on Patreon, you can subscribe to it uh, like uh, you would do with a normal podcast player. And we hope you like it. And the second reason why this episode is exciting is that we're talking about Versailles. This is true. The big one. The big one. Um, we want to give you a little teaser, get you all kind of hot and bothered about these podcasts. And then uh, we hope to see you in the future supporter podcasts via Patreon. But in the meantime, Versailles. Versailles. How did Leonard call it in the end? You quoted him in the episode. The beginning. Oh, yeah, he said it was the beginning for the search of a post-war post -war order, not the end. Exactly. And I thought that was kind of a cool way of uh, sort of flipping the usual chronology on its head and emphasizing the instability after the supposed new order was set up. Yeah. And, I mean, uh, when you watch our episode, you can definitely see that... Um, not just the Germans had their reservations about it, but even the even on the Allied side, there was quite a few disagreements on it. Uh, some of them, some of the voices on the Allied side said it was not harsh enough. Others said it was too harsh. So what what do we make of this? Well, this is one of the reasons why I decided to include that part at the end of the episode where we talk about the different historical interpretations. It's one thing to look at the contemporaries and say, man, everybody was kind of pissed at this, except Wilson and Clemenceau, who, since I suppose they're the main architects, it makes sense they would be okay uh, with what they'd done. Wilson even said, uh, no four men have ever done a greater work in the history of mankind, or something along so those humble. lines. So yeah, humble. I, I, I'm not sure now we would agree with him, but 
it's uh, it's quite interesting to see how the interpretations of the treaty have changed over time. And now we end up from a time in the 30s and then even afterwards until probably the 90s or so where the treaty was kind of blamed for creating the conditions for World War II to a point now where historians are really emphasizing, look, there were 20 years in between the two wars, 20 years of different people in charge of different countries, making different kinds of decisions, and they had choices to make. And it's kind of like the roadmap of those choices that they made that led to World War II, rather than World War II being a sure thing the moment the ink had dried on the Versailles Treaty. Yeah, I mean, just to give a very unscientific way to illustrate this 20-year thing, because I also agree that this is usually uh, just brushed aside, um, but 20 years is a long time. I mean, 20 years from backwards from the recording of this podcast, um, I don't even... What, what was number one in the charts back then? Was it Crazy Town? It was might it, have been. 1999? Yeah. It was just after the Aqua's Barbie Girl. That was, I think, yeah. okay. maybe the year before. So think about how long that was. And then, you know, think about, you know, how long 20 years can be and what, what that means for, um, you know, how many decisions, political decisions and everything can be made in the meantime. And, you know, that's not to say that the Treaty of Versailles didn't inf strongly influence this period of time. But I also tend to agree that it, it's a bit um, monocausal to say that it is solely responsible for World War II. I mean, hindsight's 2020, and it's, it's very tempting to look at something we know happens after and look for its roots, and it points to an obvious place. But when we do that, we kind of leave out uh, the human agency, the kind of all the different untrod routes that uh, Europe could have gone. Exactly. Um, and keeping that in mind, um, you know, without making any kind of statements about the actual content of the treaty and everything, what I did find particularly interesting in your research was the, I would call it PR machinery or the, the, Im the how important it was to foster a certain image to the public. And I think in that sense, the treaty was really a, a novelty that we had reached this age of mass media um, that were not just uh, newspapers, but also, um, I mean, radio, not so much, but at least film and everything. So there were, I think you can see that uh, the Victor, Victors um, had a clear vision for how to frame this treaty and the signing of the treaty and everything. Uh, we used a lot of contemporary footage of the time in our episode to show this. And if you think about all this, um, you know, um, the same hotel for the German delegations as the Prussians uh, occupied in, uh, in 1871, uh, that the treaty was signed in the Hall of Mirrors, etc., um, uh, etc. Et so I think it became much more important to have this kind of, to, to frame your public image, to get the public on your side, um, which was also very much in line with propaganda techniques that were established during the war. 
And I think from that perspective, I found it very interesting. And I also liked the quote from uh, Colonel House that even the, the people there saw that it was meant to be humiliating. And I think the uh, this was basically also a, shoot, uh, 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 a shot in the foot. That's how you say it in English, right? They shot themselves in the foot. They yeah. shot themselves in the foot with that because, you know, uh, w once you humiliate uh, someone like that, of course, it makes it very easy for the others to play the victim card. Yeah, I was going to say, not only the victors were consciously trying to shape the public image of what happened with the treaty, but also the losers. I mean, uh, the center of, of the Germans' attempt at trying to put pressure on the Allies by indirect means was public opinion, mobilizing public opinion, making the Allies look bad or trying to paint them into a, a corner where, no, they couldn't invade because obviously the Germans are making some compromises or, or what have you. And that's one of the reasons why the Germans, they, uh, during the exchange of notes uh, throughout May and the first uh, part of June, they made those notes public. And that is something that uh, we talked about a little bit in the April episode about Italy as well when Wilson went public to try to resolve that crisis, when you go public with the details, there's sort of no going back, right? And that's part of this drama and theater and for public consumption and so on, is that uh, it's, not really, it's, it's not really something that lends itself well to compromises and nuance and understanding the other's point of view and so on. It hardens uh, positions quite quickly. And public opinion generally played a role at this juncture in time that it had never really played before. If you think about the other big example of a peace conference, uh, which was the, the Congress of Vienna in 1815 after the Napoleonic Wars, public opinion is not a, does not play a role there. And at Versailles, it plays an extremely important role. And one of uh, one small example about the humiliation and trying to sort of rub salt in the wound of the Germans, it was at the, at the ceremony, uh, Clemenceau actually planned for there to be five disfigured war veterans who'd suffered facial wounds sitting close enough to the Germans that the German representatives could see them in order to kind of drive home, you see, this is what you, know, you have done. Um, in the end, in their memoirs and letters and stuff, neither of the two Germans who signed mentioned that. So it, it might not have had the intended impact, but the, but the plan was there. The intention was, uh, was there to, to rub it in in that way. On the other hand, lest I sound like I'm sort of making excuses for the Germans, uh, they didn't help their cause by adopting this very sort of holier-than-thou righteous uh, tone as though there had not been a horrific four-year war that they had just lost. I, I think uh, the, the speech from, uh, from, we call him BR here. Uh, <laughs> Brockdorf Ranzau. Yeah, uh, his, he, he chose the de to have the defiant speech and I can understand that they were understandably shocked uh, when uh, the Allies handed them over the terms of the treaty and everything. But the kind of um, going full uh, Kaiser and do, doing like this uh, bravados speech and uh, something something about German honor and whatnot, 
um, and then thinking that this would actually influence or um, help their cause in negotiating with the, with the Germans, uh, is, uh, with the Allies, is the same logic as saying, okay, we will sink a lot of Allied U-boats and this will uh, bring the enemy to, to their knees. Like their perception of what they can achieve and with, you know, however, uh, with their speeches or show of force, um, they never really seem to have a grasp of this, you know, modern PR kind of thing. And that, again, you know, I just pointed to an example where, you know, the how the Allies, the Germans, help the Germans play the victim card. You know, if the Germans doing these kind of speeches, of course, also help the Allies uh, in the press to uh, paint themselves. And I mean, as you as you said, uh, BR was basically a cutout. The only thing uh, that was missing was a pickelhaube and a club, and then he would have looked exactly like... And maybe like, a monocle or something. Like, he would have looked exactly like how the Allied propaganda portrayed them. Yeah. So in, uh, in that sense, um, they they talk to each other, but also not really. Right, and, and one of the themes that came back again and again in, in a lot of the historical literature is how it was a failure in communication from beginning to end, the whole process between the two. There's no face-to-face -face negotiations, um, so they try to bring things into the public to, to get public opinion on board, which leads to them sort of exaggerating, continuing wartime style um, propaganda. And at the same time, they're trying to ride two horses because not only uh, was each leader of each state and associated, you know, hangers-on and delegations and so on. Not only are they trying to send a message to the others, but just as importantly, they cannot lose face at home. And the domestic situation exerts a big role. I mean, Lloyd George wanted to make a lot more con compromises and concessions than he even proposed because, like, the Times and other papers were really pushing no you know, we can't be weak, look at how horrible the Germans are and have been, uh, and they started the war and so on and so forth. So it goes back to an overarching concept in history where you understand international relations through the primacy of domestic politics. Yeah, it was a German historian who came up with the, the idea of the primat der Innenpolitik, and that's something that you see play out in uh, Versailles as well. Uh, what I also find interesting about the lack of uh, communication, why that is so relevant, is something that I think is also something that people need to understand uh, today, is that whenever these kind of treaties uh, are signed uh, or any kind of negotiations on a supranational level are happening or bilateral or whatever kind of level are happening, you know, of course we usually use abstract language and say, Germany signed this, uh, whoever, what other negotiation partner signed this. But actually, these uh, negotiations and treaties are compromises based on interpersonal relations between the diplomats and the negotiators who uh, reached a compromise. And of course, there is interpersonal connection there. And there are like several people, several people uh, in delegation, they sit in a room with the people they negotiate with, they build personal re relations, and that kind of thing builds up trust so that you can actually reach compromises. And this was not the case here in, uh, in Versailles. This was all uh, the little negotiation between the Germans and the Allies that did happen only happened in notes and not face to face. So 
then they all interpreted the nodes. Uh, that's a you know a common thing that also happens with text messaging today, uh, through the lens of how they perceive the pe person that wrote the note. And after four and a half years of fighting, you can imagine how that image in there uh, of their uh, of the other side actually was. Yeah, and it went down to the to the smallest things, right? I mean. Uh, BR, in his response, this defiant speech, his response to Clemenceau, remained seated. And this was kind of a taboo. You're not supposed to do that. It's not polite. When you're in this formal situation and you're the one speaking, you should stand. So the French press was full of, you know, critique that this arrogant Prussian style, you know, guy was disrespectful and didn't even stand. And uh, afterwards, he explained it. Now, whether this was exactly what was happening in that moment or not, I guess we can't be sure, but he explained it in saying that he was under so much pressure uh, and was so stressed that he didn't feel like he would be able to stand. And that is a long way from the picture that gets painted in the French press, for example. Yeah. Um, so the other thing is, of course, that um, as you also illustrated in the episode, is that it wasn't just about uh, the Allies versus the Germans in negotiating terms, but a lot of the treaty was actually negotiated. The Allies versus the Allies? Yeah, among the Allies who had very different goals. And for to talk a bit more about the inter-Allied relations, we actually have an expert here, as we try to have every month when we record the podcast. Our uh, expert this month is uh, Chris Kempshall, uh, who wrote about the inter-allied relations. And through editing magic, you're going to hear an interview that we recorded earlier with him now. All right, so thanks very much, Chris, for joining us. Uh, today we're joined by Dr. Chris Kempshall, a British historian who has published on inter-allied relations during and immediately after the First World War. So we thought this would be a great opportunity to talk a little bit about the Treaty of Versailles and how that played a role in terms of uh, reflecting the inter-allied relationships for better and for worse. So welcome, Chris, and thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So let's uh, maybe start big and then sort of drill our way into the details. So give us the, the quick and dirty summary of what we need to know about the dramatic interworkings of uh, inter-allied relations. Uh, coalition warfare is not known for being an easy thing to do. No, no, it's not. There's a, there's a quote occasionally given to uh, Ferdinand Foch towards the end of the war, uh, where he reflects back on it and says that once he realized what it was to fight a coalition war, he lost some respect for Napoleon um, in regards to having to try and find a way to make a variety of kind of significant world powers agree on anything at all. Um, let alone kind of military strategy or as when we'll come to, to Versailles about um, about actual negotiation and actually kind of trying to construct a, a peaceful world afterwards. Um, to try and understand elements about um, kind of the inter-allied relations, what we have to kind of understand to an extent is that it's largely alliances of convenience, certainly in regards to, to Britain and France and even extending out to, to Russia. These countries don't have a huge amount in common with each other, except for their relationship with another country, which is Germany. Um, so Germany actually acts as the unifying figure in the Entente Cordiale. 
um, between Britain, um, France and Russia and then America. Um, that itself causes problems at the immediate end of the war and the immediate aftermath of the war, because you remove Germany from the equation, and now suddenly you're back to three countries, in this case, Britain, France, and America, who don't really have a great deal that they agree on together. And therein comes a lot of the problems from it, that Germany actually provides the Entente Cordiale with something to aim at. You remove Germany, and suddenly there's a vacuum that's going to get filled with competing national priorities. Not to mention the Italians, of course, who ended up uh, abandoning the... the conference for a short period of time. Absolutely. Um, and in fact, I'm pretty sure you had a, an episode recently with uh, Vander Wilcox talking um, at length about um, the Italian um, situation. And Italy actually provides almost a perfect example of these kind of the idea of inter-ally cooperation versus the reality of what it's going to look like at the end, because Italy has promised any number of things by the Treaty of London in 1915, which as it turns out, they're not going to get at the end of the war because various more powerful countries are going to effectively force them to the side. Italy enters feeling like a secondary level power, but in the belief that by participating in the war, they'll, they'll rise up the power charts. But what actually happens is that people treat them like a secondary power. They treat them like a secondary power during the war, and they definitely treat them like a secondary power at Paris in 1919. Yeah, so maybe we can jump right into the peace conference at this stage. Uh, one of the more interesting aspects that I found in, in researching the, the episode for Versailles was the sort of revival of British fears of French dominance on the continent. Now, in hindsight, that seems kind of crazy. I mean, if you look at the state of France in 1919, the long demographic uh, decline, the economic weakness with respect to Germany, even though Germany had been beaten, its economic and, and military potential was still far beyond that of France. But some of the British, and there's a great quote from Lord Curzon at the conference saying that he still feared that France would be the power that Britain had the most to worry about. Um, how did the British get this impression at the, uh, at the time? Because today it seems, it seems way out in left field. It does seem way out in the way left field. I mean, to an extent, it can probably be summed up by by kind of two phrases. Firstly, is, is the cliche that old habits die hard when mm -hmm. it comes to um, British approach to the to France. The other one is um, uh, a phrase that sometimes kind of people in Britain use to kind of suggest kind of Britain objectivity, but is also used as a, as an insult, and it's definitely used as an insult um, in regards to Paris and Versailles, which is that Britain has no permanent friends, only permanent interests. Um, and Britain, having defeated um, Germany, sees firstly actually an opportunity now for doing something with Germany. But at the same time, Britain's interaction with the continent has always been that we don't want any single nation to have control over the channel ports, certainly, or have control over the European power balance. Um, so having crushed Germany to an extent, uh, what they don't want to do is allow France to expand into that vacuum. Um, Britain is quite happy keeping a slightly kind of wonky, imbalanced um, Europe, as long as it means that nobody's going to rise from the ashes from it. Um, now, because of this, and because Britain then attempts to kind of keep France in a particular place, the French reaction to Britain at Versailles is anger, it is fury. It is a sense that they've been betrayed. There's a, there's a French general who played a big part in the role of the creation of the Entente Cordiale, the military aspect of it, called Victor Huguet, 
um, who writes a book um, basically screaming at Britain, saying, you betrayed us, you robbed us of our victory, our moment when we'd all won this thing, you stabbed us in the back. How could you do this to us? The, this, this palpable anger directed at what he refers to and many others refer to as perfidious Albion for betraying France in this manner at their moment of triumph. Yeah, but I, mean, I suppose the French uh, didn't have a lot of choice given that their pre-war ally to counterbalance Germany was pretty much out of the picture in terms of Russia. Yes, yeah, the, the, the removal of Russia um, as a kind of a, an Eastern Front balance to Germany kind of leaves France slightly flapping in the wind in that Britain's going to fall back if worst case scenario is going to fall back on its empire. Um, America, worst case scenario, as it turns out, is going to just retreat back into isolationism. So France is going to end up looking around for, for friends. Um, so what happens is that when Clemenceau and the French government kind of gather together at, in 1919, the treaty's been signed, the, the, the peace conference is over, they watch the British delegation leaving and they watch the American delegation leaving. And one of their concerns now is that given the way that the treaty negotiations have, have gone, is that in a future conflict with Germany, Britain has left, America has left, are they going to come back? You know, if Germany returns one day in force, are Britain and America going to return to support France in this future battle? And the, and the feeling amongst them is probably not that um, at some point in the future, France is going to have to deal with Germany by themselves. And this is some one of the kind of the, the issues that face France. Not only have they failed to do what they wanted to do with Germany, and we can kind of come to that in more detail shortly, but actually in a kind of a long-term issue, they've They've lost the two allies that they previously had. This is going to have long-term impact on French kind of European strategy. Well, why don't we then uh, slightly shift gears and talk about how the French didn't quite get what they want. I mean, there was this memorandum published in February uh, pushing for the Rhineland being actually detached from Germany and used, I guess, uh, for lack of a better word, as a sort of puppet state with French troops kind of defending on the Rhine. How did yes. France go from sort of that position to what it eventually got? Um, the, the French position, uh, to, to understand the French position, we have to kind of understand a partial aspect of the French mindset. Um, and when I, I've no doubt that it'll come up in, in conversations when you're doing the, the, the rest of this episode, is that people refer to the Treaty of Versailles as being harsh. And we can get into whether or not it is or not. But the, when it comes to the French standpoint, the, you know, the answer to that question is always, well, why shouldn't it be harsh? They were invaded in 1817-71. They were invaded again in 1914. There were plenty of people in France in living memory of two German invasions um, of them in, 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 kind of in recent times. So their immediate standpoint is to create a situation where Germany cannot do that again. Now, the way that France works and the way that France had traditionally worked in regards to its kind of foreign ministry is it's populated by lawyers, effectively. They look at trying to find legal solutions. So what they want to try and do at Versailles is to bind Germany in so much red tape and legal kind of framework and legal ties that they can never again actually get into a position where they can threaten France again. Um, and part of that is also kind of changing some of the borders, so having the border of um, Germany being the Rhine. And that's what Marshal Foch really, really wants. Mm -hmm. He wants the Rhine be detached. He wants the border with Germany to be the river, uh, the river Rhine. Um, the problem that the French have is they can't sell it to the Americans and they can't sell it to the British. And if they can't sell it to the Americans and they can't sell it to the British and they can't get that type of level of support, then they cannot 
get it into the treaty to sign with Germany. So what they end up with is basically being uh, caught in between two situations of being unable to gather the support of their closest allies and being therefore unable to force these terms on on Germany because the British absolutely want to support it. The, the Americans are steadfast in, in not wanting to start carving Germany up to the extent that the French want to. Um, but this leaves the French with a problem because they can't therefore bind Germany with all of this international law that they desperately, desperately want to. The, the war guilt clause that is often kind of referred to as being kind of the, the, the harshest aspect of it is, is also kind of fundamentally misunderstood. Yes, it's, I mean, it's referred to as the war guilt clause, but it's not designed to be a tool of humiliation for Germany. It's, it's effectively getting them to admit legal liability. It's as if they'd had a car crash. One of the two people has got to take some form of responsibility for it so you can fill in the insurance documents. That's what the war guilt clause is supposed to be. By Germany admitting liability, then there can be legal framework applied to them as the liable party. And that's kind of what France is attempting to do, but they just can't sell it. Yeah, this is actually something that we do talk about in the episode, right? These, the sort of, let's say, pragmatic paperwork intent of uh, Article 231, and then the way that it's read and reacted to by the Germans. Yes. Um, but uh, with, the, with the legal talk and so on, it makes me think that's, that's quite an interesting indirect grand strategy. If you can't beat them on the battlefield, just send an army of lawyers at them uh, Absolutely. Through, through the peace treaties. That's kind of an interesting uh, technique. Um, There's a really interesting book by um, a historian called Peter Jackson, not not the Lord of the Rings, Peter Jackson, I right, think right. Jackson, uh, called The Balance of Power, which is all about French foreign policy from before the war and after the war. And it is absolutely fascinating in how the French diplomatic service produces lawyers, constantly producing people with legal backgrounds and how it has a, a huge effect on how they approach things like waging war and waging peace. Interesting. Um, all right, maybe we can, we can shift from uh, sort of, let's say, more structural factors to factors of personality. And of course, <laughs> there's, always this, there's always this push and pull about which of these two factors should historians kind of base their arguments on and so on. But uh, one of the interesting sub-themes to me was how Wilson seemed to have trouble understanding the Europeans generally, and he himself didn't seem to have a lot of, let's call it, cultural competence. How do you think that, if, if it did at all, played a role in, uh, in the inter-allied negotiations? I mean, he didn't speak French. He came at it from this very deeply Protestant religious point of view, which obviously would be a bit foreign to someone like Clemenceau. Yeah, I think I think this ends up being quite an important one because, as you say, you, you know, we can talk about the structural aspects, but structural aspects don't do negotiation. Human beings do. Um, and the kind of if we think about the big four of, of Wilson and Lloyd George and Clemenceau and um, Orlando and Wilson himself represents a problem to himself, because even from the outbreak of the war, Wilson takes a position which effectively says that he is above the petty concerns of Europe. Um, that he alone and America alone, by being removed from the situation, have an objectivity that um, Clemenceau and Lloyd George and the British and the French and the Italians just don't have. Um, now, that can play well with a kind of an American audience at the outbreak of the war. You can't, though, go into negotiations and pretend that you are more virtuous than everybody else in the room. There's a, there's a quote from Lloyd George who 
uh, you know, when asked how we thought he got on at um, the Paris Peace Conference, says that he thinks he did very well, considering that on one side with Woodrow Wilson and the other side with Clemenceau, he was sat between uh, Jesus Christ and Napoleon. Um, <laughs> And well, there's also the this, this Clemenceau quote that about the 14 points that, uh, you know, even the good Lord only had 10 or something. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I mean, what we kind of see is that there's also almost like a, a golden age of European wit uh, being, being showcased at parts uh, at Paris. But Wilson does rub people up the wrong way. A lot of the meetings between the, you know, the heads of the big four don't take place in like the war office and they don't take place in Clemenceau's office. Wilson has them all over to his study where he kind of sits in the middle of them with, with Lloyd George on one side and, and Clemenceau on the other. Orlando ends up being like pushed off to the side, sat up against a wall. Which, trying, trying to understand what's being said. Trying to understand what's being said. There's also a fairly kind of weird quote from Orlando, which again gives a, an insight into to Woodrow Wilson's kind of slightly personality aspect that Orlando told uh, one of his uh, ministers that he was beginning to understand um, elements of British because he finally understood um, a, a racist joke that Wilson had told nine times and he was beginning to understand the punchline of it. Um, but Wilson also slightly kind of hobbles himself in that he, he enters into this European theatre without really a great understanding of what, of what Europe is and what Europe is going to do in these type of situations without fully appreciating the kind of the level of anger in France, for example. But he also doesn't bring an awful lot of American politics with him. He leaves. He doesn't bring any of the Republican Party with him, which immediately creates a kind of a, a partisan element to, to the peace treaty. He's willing to kind of sacrifice aspects of his 14 points in able to kind of try and um, ram through the League of Nations and try and ram through elements of, of self-determination. But he, he struggles to personally kind of connect on a on a gravitas level. At times, Lloyd George and Clemenceau and Wilson actually get along reasonably well. They laugh, they tell jokes, they also insult each other, they swear at each other, they shout at each other. But Wilson tries to appear detached and as a result ends up appearing detached. And that's, that's not going to help him sell what he's wanting to the British and, and the French, particularly when, you know, the French have a fairly hefty shopping list of their own. And Lloyd George is trying to trying to trace something of a middle ground um, in regards to kind of punishing Germany, but also creating a, a potential trading block for them as well. Right. Um, okay. How about uh, we've worked ourselves into this a bit. Let's let's tackle the 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 big question here at the end of our at least from my point of view, perhaps the most interesting question about the peace conference. Um, and we're going a bit beyond inter-allied relations, but we, we added a section to our Versailles episode talking about the historiography of it a little bit and how yeah. for decades it was kind of seen as, you know, such a flawed treaty that it guaranteed the coming of a, of a second war. But then in the last uh, 20-ish years or so, there's been a much different assessment of it. I mean, you've got people like Jay Winter, Antoine Prost, Jürgen Leonhardt, Margaret Macmillan, David Stevenson, all kind of relativizing the look and saying, well, it was the best compromise that could have been reached or it wasn't actually as harsh as uh, people have assumed and emphasizing the decisions of the post-1919 uh, statesmen. And I've, I'm wondering, this reassessment of how hard it is to remake a world order comes at a time when the U.S. is 
trying to remake a regional order in the Middle East in the early uh, 2000s. Do you think those two things are connected or how would you assess that situation? I think they I think they probably are. I think there is an interesting kind of link between the changes in historiography and changes in, in the world order um, when that historiography is coming out. And I also think that it's probably worth considering how, because, I mean, academic publishing runs reasonably slow. You're talking, you know, two to three years at times for, for books to come out and, and historiography to start, to start changing. What affects the collapse of the Soviet Union and the attempt to remake Eastern Europe? Um, into a into a collection of new independent sovereign countries also has on how people reflect back on the Treaty of Versailles um, and the Paris Peace Conference, because I feel that some of the more kind of uh, the the, un, the unfair criticism of what goes on at, at Paris, and again, you know, we've been talking about some of the things. You know, there is plenty to criticise, but it's a suggestion that, for, like, apparently there was a guidebook, like a you know a roadmap to do, <laughs> which they just ignored sure. um, and decided to do their own thing. Uh, and, you know, the criticism, oh, they were making up as they were going along. Well, of course they were making up as they went along. This had never happened before. Um, the, the most obvious comparison is probably the Congress of Vienna after the after Napoleon mm-hmm. um, at, the, at the beginning of the 19th century. Yeah, and things um, had changed. The, things have changed. You know, quite a lot's gone on since then. Um, and also, we, you know, we, we say that all of the various powers, you know, they want things out of Paris Peace Conference. Well, if, again, of course they do. And all of, you know, the, the, the French position is not unreasonable. The British position isn't unreasonable. The, the American position isn't unreasonable. The Italian position isn't particularly unreasonable, given what they, they were promised. Why wouldn't these countries, you know, at the very least, want what was promised to them? Um, you can even kind of trace back some of the issues with um, what kind of goes on at, at Paris and kind of to try and understand how we look back on it and even understand some of the historiography of it in that the the problems of the Paris Peace Conference lie in 1914, not in 1918. Um, Britain and France have what you would potentially call war aims, which is we'd like to defeat Germany, liberate our own country and liberate Belgium. That doesn't tell you anything about what you want afterwards. There are no joint allied war aims at the outbreak of the First World War, but what they want Europe to look like. Afterwards, which means that when you get to 1918 and when you get to 1919, you are going to have to make it up as you go along to, you know, to see what the world and Europe looks like. Even anything created in, in 1914 is going to have an impact on, well, Russia doesn't exist anymore in the same way that, that it used to. Um, so some of the, the kind of the criticisms of, um, of Paris, I don't think properly take on board that stuff. And I do think you can see it in the historiography of people looking at kind of attempting to remake uh, the Middle East attempting to remake Eastern Europe after the collapse of the Soviet Union, and kind of a reflection of actually this is hard. There are no easy answers to these types of questions, and you're not going to know if you've got it wrong for decades afterwards to actually see how this plays out. So, Chris, thank you so much for joining us and uh, contributing to our uh, attempt to interpret and bring across the important aspects of the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, why don't my pleasure. Uh, why don't we close by you telling our listeners if they want to know more about interallied relations, how they can kind of get their hands on your on your book? Well, um, yeah, my, my book is called British American, oh, sorry, British French and American Relations on the Western Front, 1940-1918. It deals a lot with relationships between soldiers, but also the kind of the wider, some of the wider strategic aspects. And the final chapter of it devotes a lot of time. 
to what goes on at um, at Versailles. Now, you can get that book through uh, the Palgrave website. If you just kind of Google my name or Google the book title, um, it'll bring you to the Palgrave website. I'm hoping that um, we'll have, by the time this goes live, we'll have a, a discount code for your listeners if they want to try and get maybe 20% off of it or something similar. You can also get the book through through Amazon and kind of normal places. I would say that you'd be able to get it in like good bookshops, but um, unfortunately, academic publishers don't tend to put their books in bookshops. Uh, but you can definitely find it online. Um, I, I, in wider sense than that, I, I, I've no doubt that you're going to mention her repeatedly in um, in your in your podcast and your and your your forthcoming YouTube episode. If people want to read about the Paris Peace Conference, go and buy Margaret Macmillan's book, Paris 1919, The Peacemakers. Mm -hmm. It is just superb in understanding what's going on at Paris. I also recommend Elizabeth Greenhall's book, um, Victory Through Coalition, which deals with um, particularly the relationship between Britain and France throughout the war. And again, has a has a knock on effect to understanding why Paris plays out in the way that Paris does. Um, so those would be my kind of historiographical tips for any of your listeners. All right. Thanks very much, Chris. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. So uh, thanks once again, Chris. Um, we also have some uh, questions from uh, Patreon, actually, from our supporters um, that we're going to try to answer now. And they actually tie in to Versailles a bit, or uh, let's say into 1919 a bit. So the first question comes from... Christian Weibrecht who asks, did Thailand play any role in World War I? Well, yes, they did, even though it's not a very well-known thing. Um, Thailand back then was called Siam, and it was an independent country. Now, it had, had to give up some of its territory to the colonial powers, was basically forced to do that. And it then declared war on the central powers, on Germany, in 1917. And the idea was, and we see this with a lot of countries in South America and China and so on, they declared war in order to kind of get in the Allies' good graces. So they could say, yeah, we helped you in your big war against Germany. We didn't really have a conflict with Germany, but we helped you. So maybe we can recover some of our strength that you've taken from us through the colonial uh, power imbalance. And the king at the time wanted to sort of... Uh, let's say, solidify control within the nation as well. So again, this domestic politics theme. So there was a, a Siamese expeditionary force that was sent with some medical units and a labor, some labor units. Um, and eventually, once the, the fighting against Germany stopped, there was a Thai representation at the peace conference. They signed the Versailles Treaty, became a founding member of the League of Nations and contributed some troops to the occupation of the Rhineland. Yeah, which is something I also only learned when we researched uh, something about the uh, question that Chris asked. Um, and yeah, I found it fascinating. Um, it's a very good example. We always thought about that we would do our standalone episode on, on Siam um, back in 2017, I think. They even had some fans doing some research for uh, trying to do some research for us uh, back in Thailand, actually. But they say that it's not a very well-known thing, and it's not not very well documented even in Thailand, and it's hard to find like uh, secondary sources even on the thing. So, and the Allied occupation of the Rhineland will be a topic that we will dive into a bit more during the summer. 
It is, that is a, a hot one, especially when it comes to how the German population reacted, especially to non-European occupying troops. Yeah, absolutely. All right, um, another question we had, and this ties more directly back into our Versailles discussion we just had, is uh, from Corn Free Chris. It's a lot of Chris's today. How much negotiating power did the Germans have when signing the treaty? Well, as it turns out, not that much. And that was the case for uh, some different reasons. One was the kind of structural factor, right? So if you're not allowed to sit at the same table, it's going to limit what you can do. You're not going to be able to um, build up those personal relationships. You're not going to have contact with the different allied delegations and maybe exploit some of their differences. This was one of the effects of that the German delegation was basically confined to this hotel and the park next to it. They couldn't just go around and have other meetings with the Italians who were also upset uh, with the treaty or whatever. They couldn't do that. So uh, they weren't able to exploit the, the differences that existed amongst the Allies. So that was one kind of tool that they didn't have that you might normally have. Um, and another factor that really limited the Germans was the domestic situation in the Allied countries. I mean, the Allied governments depend on their populations for support and for votes. And those populations are quite passionate about how they don't really care for the Germans. And the four years of kind of hyping everybody up with uh, propaganda and people really actually suffering, you know, terribly and, and losses of friends and family members, this doesn't go away in the blink of an eye because of the long-term global political good. So it would be very tough for the Germans to convince the Allied leaders to make significant concessions when those Allied leaders were hard-pressed by their domestic critics, not only the public in general, but also political rivals. Like Poincaré was putting lots of pressure on Clemenceau um, as well. Plus, uh, another big factor for the Germans limiting their strength at the negotiations was the danger of Bolshevik revolution. It had taken Russia. It was kind of temporarily uh, running the show. The Bolsheviks were in Hungary. And there'd been, as we've discussed on the show in previous episodes, several failed uh, local revolutions in Germany itself. So if you don't have a stable basis, and you're the German, the new German government, you know, like, we're pretty fragile. We have to get some uh, peace deal done so that we can feed people again and have some kind of stability. Otherwise, the whole country might collapse. All right, so these were uh, two questions from our Patreon community. And this was almost the end of our supporter pod podcast, um, which we hope you enjoyed. Um, as a few roundup production notes, um, June is now the month, the first month where we have like just simple chronological episodes which tell you what happened exactly 100 years ago. Next episode will be about the uh, Baltic states, particularly about Estonia and Latvia, though we haven't forgotten about Lithuania and we will cover them in, an, in a separate episode uh, further down the line. And if you want to get access to the podcast, um, you can support us on Patreon or you can support us um, via the YouTube join button that you can find below this video or any other of our videos. Um, in any case, 
we are very happy um, for and great, grateful for your support. Couldn't produce this show without you. And if you have any feedback for the podcast, any questions, any kind of remarks, um, then just put them in the comments below here. And we will see you next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting. And we'll see you in the next episode.